This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Market here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future of Foreign Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. The views of our guests are their own, not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a great show lined up today. A guest in the studio from the local Philadelphia area, Rick Pickern, Chief Investment Officer at Pickern. Rick, welcome to our studio. Good afternoon. Thanks. Um, I know you've done some work with Professor Siegel in the past. Professor, we're going to start off the show just with some some commentary. A lot going on in the markets, a little bit of volatility coming back, but a lot happened in the next few weeks. Um, what, what's your sense? Yeah, I mean, um, of course, I mean, the big, the big thing is going to be the Fed meeting uh, this Wednesday. Um, we're going to get two more inflation reports, but I, I mean, I think... My my feeling is it's going to be on the hawkish side, uh, the statement. Um, given the tightness of the labor markets we've talked about, um, and uh, we, we hear anecdotal evidence all the time about uh, how markets, are, labor markets are tightening, I think um, they're not going to give a hint that this might be, there might be a pause afterwards. I mean, everyone does expect 25 basis points, but the, the, the question is, the market still thinks that it will not go either in September or December, but I don't know if they're going to give that impression because I think, uh, as I said, I think the market is, uh, labor market is very strong. So I think that there might be a little volatility after the statement. Of course, there will be Jay Powell's uh, um, press conference um, where you know he will be asked about whether we're not going to have three or four. We'll see how he how he answers uh, that particular uh, problem. Uh, as far as the markets uh, going on, I mean, you know, some of the Italian problems seem to resolve, I mean, uh, as much as it could anyways, um, uh, and I don't think there's really any change there. Um, people are talking about rotation. We had a couple of days of weakness of NASDAQ. Honestly, we've had some of those before, and they disappear, and as you know, NASDAQ uh, hit new highs earlier um, uh, this week, so, and I don't, I don't see that rotation necessarily uh, setting in, uh, settling in uh, yet. But I think we may see the 10-year over 3% by the end of the week, uh, next, uh, this coming week because of the, uh, of the Fed meeting. Yeah, we do see small caps sort of breaking out with, with sort of rising rates, a little bit strong U.S. economy. Small caps seem to be doing particularly well. Yeah, and, and part of the reason, I think, is because the U.S. economy is really strong. I mean, again, the people I'm following, I have GDP this quarter at 4%. Um, of course, we still have one more month to go, but uh, uh, it's going to be three and a half to four, and may even be a little bit higher. While we're having the, you know, we're having trouble. The emerging markets 
boy, some of the currencies, you're talking Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, um, have uh, they've taken a little crunch. And that was another reason for, I think, the movement in the treasuries earlier this week, and we got that yield down. But I somehow I don't think that's systematic, because commodity prices are still maintaining pretty good levels. Um, I, I, I don't see that as systematic. I, I see the emerging markets as actually a good entry point at this uh uh, at this level, although clearly, uh, you know, you might not pick a bottom, but a uh, long run, I think um, I think the values are there. Interesting. Rick, do you have any uh, questions or comments for the professor? Yes. Well, I, I mostly uh, agree. You know, we, we really are, are keeping a close eye on how the Fed interacts with the cycle. And, and we feel like that the stimulus of December actually has given Powell uh, an ability to, to go on this sort of slow rate-raising path without t- engendering growth. So Dr. Siegel just told us we're going to he's going to have 4% this quarter. If we can end up on a 2 or 3 year path of middle threes, uh low threes and and move forward, you know, a lot of the things that are worrying the the market right now are are, are going to go away and you're going to yeah. see a longer term path to this to this bull market. Conversely, is if if we've done this stimulus and for some reason we can't drive through to some growth, really serious uh, organic growth. You're going to see the yield curve invert, and we could have a shorter end of the cycle. But we don't see that happening right now. We see we see a, a, a really a, a, another brick in this slowly evolving bull market. It's been nine years in the making. We were talking about shortening duration and interest rate pressures in 2010. It's 2018. We're still waiting on them, you know. And the investors who've won have been the ones who read Dr. Siegel's book, they stepped back, they put a policy in place, and they let it work for them rather than moving from, from idea to idea as as these events have happened. Yeah, and, and Rick, let me just emphasize, uh, I think this will be an all-time record recovery. Uh, we have to get to July of next year without uh, a recession uh, starting. Um, and sometimes, by the way, it takes quite a few months later on to actually identify a peak. So it's not like the bells ring in July. Um, but I think, you know, it, it definitely two or, two or three years. However, to get, and I, I want the 3% GDP, I want 3% plus, um, we need a productivity lift because we can't get it from the number of workers alone. That would just, there's just not enough uh, there. So if we can get a productivity lift, and the, the Fed can, you know, slow down the workers down to 100, 120,000 a month. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a real gold lead lock situation where the bull market will continue, uh, definitely and, and, um, uh, the, uh, the expansion will continue. But, uh, again, we, we need to see a productivity boost. We need to see, uh, not, uh, and the unemployment rate 3.8. Wow, can't go much lower without really sparking real shortages. So we've got, we've got to look at those going forward, and um, I think that will keep this year's equity returns, as I said, at last December, 0 to 10%. Um, if we can get a productivity boost and the labor market uh, stabilizes without lowering that unemployment rate, we could, we could see more. Professor, but, um, yeah, there could be some very, very good things uh, um, happening. Professor, I know you're uh, out traveling the next two weeks across Europe, so hopefully you have yeah. a good trip there. Uh, come back to us with some some thoughts from the ground. Yes, uh, I'm going to try to be watching from Budapest, uh, Jay Powell's. 
um, press conference, but uh, uh, because I think that that's, that's going to be important. But, uh, yeah, we'll have a lot more to say uh, three weeks from now when I'll be back on the show. And, and Professor, I saw, I know Rick does a lot of family office planning. I saw, you know, a very personal note from you this, this earlier this week on a Philadelphia Inquirer story, some, you know, what, how you're yeah. getting involved in the local Philadelphia area. Do you want to just sort of highlight for our listeners? Yes, well, I'm very proud to be able to do that. Um, uh, Independence National Park uh, has a lot of very historic buildings, as we know, the uh, Independence Hall, uh, etc. But one of the real historic buildings, which has been closed uh, for uh, almost 40 years, is with the first bank of the United States. The bank started by Alexander Hamilton, the first Federal Reserve, very important in, in funding the early part of our, uh, uh, you know, just the early part of our uh, nation. And it's been closed because they haven't had enough money to repair it. They're now seeking private funds, and I have uh, committed uh, on a matching grant from Jerry Lanfasta a good amount of funds, uh, hoping to restore it to uh, its previous glory. Uh, and I also put an exhibit inside, which will talk about uh, the foundations of the monetary system in the United States, whose story is really not told anywhere, uh, either in Philadelphia or really even in New York, um, and uh, despite all the important buildings being here. So, yeah, I'm very proud to be part of this. And, um, uh, you know, uh, we're working with the Federal Reserve on getting the educational part done on uh, the exhibits. Very good. Professor, thanks for, uh, for joining us. Have a good trip uh, across Europe the next two weeks. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Bye, Rick. Bye, Jeremy. Uh, so, Rick, we'll let, let's give uh, our, our listeners um, – so you're the chief investment officer at Picairn. Correct. Uh, you were just telling me it's a 100-year-old institution. In, in 2023, we'll, we'll, we'll turn 100. Yep. Maybe you could sort of – before you get to, to Picairn, maybe tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how you your, – you, your, your career, how you got to Picairn. Sure. Uh, uh, I um, – my dad uh, was born in the Philadelphia area. He actually moved to Texas and married my mom and uh, after – uh, getting educated around, I, I, I settled in Texas as a long equity money manager. I got my MBA at Rice, uh, studied uh, uh, with a with a professor, uh, Dave Eikenberry there, who, who we did a lot of research that uh, was similar to some of the research that, that Dr. Siegel does. I came out and was running long equity money after a period of time. My family business said, we're going to make some changes on the investment side. Why don't you come to Philadelphia and pull for the Eagles? And I said, "Well, I'll come to Philadelphia." And actually, <laughs> after, after a while, I, <laughs> I, I began to pull for the Eagles and certainly pull for the Phillies. So it's been a good transition. It's been a good. It was a good year for you there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so long equities it was an actively managed approach. This is a GARP, uh, yeah, actively managed approach. And and what we did at Pitcairn at the time, we had a uh, what they call a hybrid type type investment offering where we. We had active managers in-house that we hired uh, for some strategies, and we went outside to hire managers for other strategies. And myself and and and, and our uh, uh, CEO, Leslie Voth, and others led a transition of this business to fully open architecture, meaning we're not going to create any proprietary uh, uh, management in-house. We're just going to select from active managers outside, which we felt like really put us on the side of the table of the families that we serve if, they're, if it's active, if it's passive, and one manager or another, all our job is to find the best solution for that client. And since I had a background in money management and selecting money managers, they wanted me to be a part of the team that led those changes. So, so talk about the 100-year the history. How did it get started uh, back in the day? 
Well, my, my grandfather was born in Scotland uh, and is, is a great story of, of, of entrepreneurial, American entrepreneurial uh, success. He, he came over on a, on a boat when he was 14 years old and began with this little job with this railroad. But he, he knew technology and he knew the telegraph, mm. uh, which was the Internet of the day, and at a very young age rose up through this r- railroad to, to lead it. Uh, became an oil investor and a, a sort of a private equity investor back wow. in the late 1800s uh, and became rather wealthy at a young age, traveled to Europe, realized they were making glass uh, uh, better in Europe than they made it in the, in the States. So he purchased that equipment, brought it back to Pittsburgh where he was and started PPG Industries, which is Pittsburgh Plate Glass. And out of that wealth, uh, his three sons started our firm in 1923 to help their families manage their wealth. And in 1985, we opened our doors to help other families manage their affairs. Wow. So how big is the uh, is the organization today? Right now we have uh, 70 employees. We serve 100 families. Uh, and we advise on about uh, $5.8 billion in assets. Very, very impressive. And so how, in terms of the family office services, you have minimum type requirements to, to, be, to, to, to work with you guys? Uh, correct. And, and uh, I think we are unique as a business in that we really look at a lot of different elements that are important to families of wealth. Many firms in the investment business are really looking to handle the investment fares of lots of different kinds of investors. We, on the other hand, are looking to handle all the affairs of one particular kind of investor, the complex multi-generational family. So we, we will do estate planning and tax returns and uh, coordinate that estate planning with, with their estate councils. We'll do the investment side. We'll do governance work. We, we call it sort of momentum, wealth momentum for these families so that they have momentum in all areas of their, their, their life, both financial and family. So this wealth momentum track, that's sort of an interesting buzzword. Um, you know, momentum is a sort of investment strategy people are talk a lot about. Right. And, and sort of the, you're sort of playing on the wealth momentum. Um, and it, the idea is that you just want to keep it going and go from one generation. Well, I, I think the idea is, are you where you want to be? Uh, really, wealth momentum in terms of investments has nothing to do with momentum investments. I would say it would be, do you have a plan in place that's really going to meet your goals over the long term? Are you Have you actually thought out what your wealth picture is going to look like? And are you invested to where you're maximizing the probability that you're going to achieve those goals? Momentum in terms of estate planning is, is a different thing. Momentum in terms of family education or family governance, different things as well. But we've developed a momentum checklist so families can look at the various areas that are important to them and sort of assess where they are and where they need to focus their energies because these families have a lot of thing, things coming at them at once. It's not just stocks and bonds. It's a, it's, a, it's a plethora of things that they need to feel comfortable about so that they can feel like they're succeeding. We're talking with Rick Pickern of Pickern uh, Wealth uh, or Asset Management, and, and you should talk about your, your family office planning and how, how do you think about this. And this year, with the Trump and the Republican sort of tax agenda, you had a lot of tax changes. Does that throw for your clients this estate tax servicing planning? Is there unique things that these people need to be focused on with all the tax changes? Well, when you think about our firm, I think the important thing to realize is that as I was saying earlier, there's lots of firms that serve different kinds of investors. For the most part, all of our investors pay taxes at the highest rate. So it really is important for us to go the extra mile and create solutions that make sense for those families. 
on an after-tax basis. So certainly any co- changes in the tax code are going to have an implication to that. We actually, I could I could bore you actually with stories going back to about tax codes back to the 80s of different things that we've done over the years that really sort of bring to life this promise that we're always going to be looking for uh, various types of solutions that make sense for the taxable investor. And, and, but is there any is there anything about the, the unique changes in wealth estate taxes that are that that's current currently happening? Well, I think one of the things that we've done certainly in the last few years that's been really important, and and we've seen it replicated a lot uh, with other uh, uh, entities that serve wealthy families and wealthy individuals is. We've really gone a long way into to trying to coordinate the tax affairs inside equity structures. So we've partnered with a firm called Parametric, uh, uh, and basically what we're doing is bringing together our passive and act with, uh, equity structures into one large portfolio and then tax managing across those silos with an idea of deriving an extra layer of return. We call it tax alpha. Uh, over and above what your what your managers are producing, what it really is is reducing the tax burden taxes that you would have otherwise paid you don't pay when you effectuate this it's very complex it takes a lot of work uh, we've been running it for ten years now very successfully about one hundred and sixty basis points annually of tax alpha tax savings basically that we pass on to those clients so so that's interesting if you've been running for ten years it's been a straight up market generally mm-hmm. you need in some of these cases. Losses. So tell me, ex- explain where you think the tax alpha comes from in terms of, you know, how much of that could offset other income and how much there are limits in terms of you, you generate, a, 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 you have some some positions at a loss, and where is that going to offset, where is that 1.6% coming from? Well, what what we were developed it with a, uh, the PhD uh, uh, named David Stein, who was the founder of Par- Parametric and a friend of mine, and and he had really thought that if you really lay the tax optimization strategies on top of a passive index, that you'll get a benefit of it, call it 80 basis points or 70 basis points, and that you'll actually beat the index, which is what we're all trying to do. So why don't we just go do that? And what happened is that over time, as you laid that uh, tax uh, optimization process over that index, as you just alluded to it, as markets rise, uh, the opportunities to harvest losses, which is one of the five legs of, 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 of tax harvest, go down and down. What we worked on with David was the idea of incorporating active strategies around a passive core. Hmm. So the natural uh, activity of, of the managers buying and selling more securities than the, than the passive core would, and then of our activity of, of actually buying and say, selling those managers over the years as they do well, creates almost like fresh water into the stagnant pond for to be able to harvest losses or look at other tax strategies to drive that return. So there, it's, it sounds like the, the just basic market gain is only one-fifth of it. It's for this other... Yeah, so in other words, if, if I've got a manager that, that holds Dell, for example, and he's large cap, um, let's say a growth manager holds Dell, but the value manager actually wants to sell an old piece of Dell, why should he have to sell his basis? If the basis is more favorable in that other silo, yeah. why couldn't you grab that basis and, and sell that? Usually these managers have complex books. They don't understand what the tax holding date is. If a, if a manager comes in and says, we're going we're gonna to sell NVIDIA today, but yet the, the holding period for that, tax, for that taxable entity is 340 days, we'll come in and say, well, we're going to hold it for two more weeks. 
and allow that to step to the long term and drop that tax rate down. So that's just one of the many strategies that we have that 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 deliver value for the clients. And and actually, if you look at a lot of the robo advisors uh, that started up, say, in 11, 12, 13, they've adopted versions of that strategy because it works well. Right. I've seen that's definitely one of the, the popular ones. Yeah. I always try to get down to like I've seen those numbers, 150, 200 basis points, and you wonder – what people are doing to get to those numbers. So it's, in- it's interesting to hear your background. Well, I, I, we we really put money to work on that in uh, March. Tim, we're, we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary, so we were an early mover there uh, and put money to work in a big way March of, 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 uh, of, of 2008 and, and, of course, had those big losses uh, uh, yep. right, right off the bat, but really have seen the ability to harvest throughout the, the rising market. Maybe sort of talk through your sort of investment process beyond sort of this this sure. tax loss. That, that's had- really a, 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 a one of the extra things that we do. Yeah, I think you know what we're primarily interested in is how to drive wealth across generations for families, and we really believe sort of foundationally that if you're going to do that, that families should hold some core of equities. Now that equity can be public, it can be private, it can be passive, it can be active, it can be international, it can be domestic. But to hold equities across across a long period of time at some meaningful um, um, allocation, we believe, is what maintains spending power and maintains wealth across a generation. And so you're dealing with a lot of wealthy families. They probably just want to stay wealthy. Like, how does that emphasize... I, I say it all the time. We're in the stay-rich business, not the get-rich business. Yeah, so- and, and so we're really looking at these, like, many family endowments to make sure that we're you know they have they they have different levels of assets that they start with they have different levels of expenditure rates that they that they undergo and they have different goals at the end of time so the allocations all differ but nonetheless you know these the core ideas that we would work with are basically academic in nature dr siegel would be very familiar with them have a core of equities be be more strategic than tactical only take we we take tactical uh, opportunities rarely but we yeah. do, do do take them keep a very close eye on on fees and taxes maintain an investment policy type philosophy that allows you to stay out of the chase cycle and move through uh, uh various market events such as you know the italy event without really changing your allocation drastically because it's probably not going to have a lot of implications to your performance in the long term maybe you know and that's where we see wealthy families get get tripped up you know they they have a good plan in place. They're executing on this plan, and then some major market disruption comes by, and they say, "Well, you know, the the history won't be won't be, you know the past uh, you know is irrelevant to my decision making process, and I'm going to tear this up." And they usually do it at exactly the wrong time, and we try to counsel against that. And you're sort of emphasizing this multi generational planning throughout these families. Do you, do you, how do you find working with? Across the generations, so you have the the elderly who probably sort of built the wealth, and then you're managing the younger, you know, the younger generation. You talked about the robo advisors. Do you feel people are being wanting service like the robo advisors? Is that something you guys are trying to do? Well, I think um, uh, automation is a part of what, how we how we're dressing the younger and smaller uh, investor. I think Pitcairn's real trademark is being able to serve generations uh, down the spectrum, and and these generations, Jeremy, they have very different. Um, Ways that they approach their wealth. The, the first generation, the wealth creators, tend to be more risk takers. They tend to be less advice takers. They want to drive that yep. agenda and bring their own ideas to the table. 
And as you move down the generations, mostly, not always, they tend to want to be a little bit um, uh, more concerned with, with building an, uh, an annuity and a per- perpetuity around that wealth yep. and understanding how it implicates uh, how the implications for their kids. Uh, so, so you know, I, I think that, that uh, uh, that's a real strength of ours is being able to address those different kinds of generational concerns and, and, and really thrive. It's what we do, it's what, where we do our best work. So what do you what, what do you think about that digital component? Is that is that something how you're trying to service people? Well, I think uh, the smart firm is gonna. It, it really gets to a matter of how to speak to your clients in a way that they feel comfortable and they hear you. So, you know, it, I think it's gonna be very difficult uh, to have an investment uh, uh, relationship with the millennial generation without being able to have. A high level of electronic communication. Yep. That's the way they're they're comfortable. We're we're working hard right now to make sure that we're out ahead of our competitors and ahead of that curve as 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 you as you deliver that. Uh, they're they're also very interested in impact investing, and that's uh, um, new uh, from an academic standpoint. It's been around for a few years now, but it, from an academic standpoint, it's new. And we want to make sure that we have offerings there that resonate with that younger generation. Interesting. What what would you say is sort of the biggest concerns that you're seeing from your your clients that you're trying to manage against now? I think um, you know post 2008, you've had an environment where there's been just a lot of fear in the marketplace, a lot of bricks in the wall of worry, and and you know one of the things that uh, why Dr. Siegel and I enjoy presenting together so much is that you know he takes this longer term view to say. You know, this is what these kinds of asset classes have done historically. This is the relationship between risk and return historically. And, you know, absent some major uh, exogenous shock to the, to to global capitalism, we can predict that it's going to be uh, – there's going to be some kind of return streams that are going to be close to that. And coming out of 2008, that was a hard argument to win. Uh, you know, coming out of 2008, the idea that – you know, mean variance optimization and 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 Markowitz theory had sort of failed the investment world, and it was a it was a bankrupt theory. We didn't believe in that. We believed that that you know that was a it was a second standard deviation event, but these things were going to come back, and so we try to. It's really been hard to make sure that families stay with a long term policy that sticks in asset classes even even when they vary. What you see right now amongst the very wealthy is a big push towards direct investments in private equity, I think in large part to escape the volatility and the fear that's associated with public equities. They don't see the marks to market and they feel more comfortable because it's not moving around. And and, and there's uh, – make no mistake, uh, we see excellent private equity products out there. I see that the way that it's getting sold right now is problematic to me and – I can I can what I can say objectively about private equity is that it's most if the Vanguard 3000 index fund represents the least expensive way to deploy equity capital private equity ex- represents the most expensive way to deploy ep- equity capital and I'm not sure that wealthy investors are always making that judgment when they put money to work in those vehicles so do you guys have any allocations to that? that oh, much? absolutely. Yeah. And there's there's good stuff out there. And, and, and we, we've seen families come up. They, they bring it to us and say they want to invest in it. We bring it to them and we find it. We have a massive platform of yep. private equity. But it has to be done 
you know, just like anything else in the investment world, with discipline, with precision, it should have a slot in the investment policy. It should be a diverse allocation to buy out, to venture. Uh, it should it should stay limited in the number of vehicles that it that it pursues, so that you can actually get. If you look at private equity, you know it's really the top quintile of private equity funds that give you that outperformance and compensate you for the ten years of capital that you give up, a tie up in that vehicle. And and uh, if you don't invest with discipline, you're not going to get the returns that you're promised out of that class. Very good. You're going to stay with us for the full hour. The second half of the show, we have Brian Westbury from First Trust, chief economist there. Any Before we bring Brian to the conversation, any other things about pig hair you want to highlight for, for our listeners? Well, I just uh, um, uh, <laughs> with my last name, I, I love the firm very much, and I love what we're doing for families, I think. Complex families have a different set of needs than traditional financial services firms address, and and uh, you know, and a lot of that is outside of the world of investments that we're talking about today. I think we uniquely deliver that. Very good. You're going to stay with us for the second half of the show. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Inside the studio with me today, we have. Rick Picairn, Chief Investment Officer Picairn. Uh, and joining us for the second half of the show is Brian Westbury, Chief Economist at First Trust Advisors. Brian's return guest. Always a, a pleasure to talk to you, Brian. Get your latest thoughts on the markets. You've been you know, really spot on on your general call to be more bullish on the markets over the last few years. I, I've been following you online. Uh, I remember earlier in the volatility story, you talked about you were taking some of the opportunities to add to, to things like small caps, which are now breaking out to all-time highs. So just wanted to get your, your latest thoughts. What's your, your current worldview? Yeah. That, uh, thank you, Jeremy. It's great to be with you, uh, as always. And, uh, you know, we have been I, – I, I have been bullish for the, the last nine years, and it's really based on uh, a belief in entrepreneurship, in innovation, and creativity. We we are living in one of the greatest periods of productivity improvement uh, that the world has ever seen. And I get it that people say GDP productivity uh, is weak, but if you actually look at the corporations, if you look at the industries, um, productivity is booming. And that's where profits are coming from. And that's why the stock market has been so strong over the last nine years consistently and why every time Brexit, Grexit, student loan freaking out, uh, tapering, the taper tantrum. I mean, you, 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 you go. I mean, there's Hindenburg omens, death crosses. Quiddly. Uh, I've, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've looked at uh, uh, every one of these as a buying opportunity. And earlier this year, uh, we had one. Um, and so just about every day the market was down, I tried to urge people to put more cash to work if they had it. Uh, and and, uh, and, and I, I think it's going to work out uh, great this year, just like it has over the past nine. Now, I, I know when we, were, when we talked last, you follow a lot this capitalized profits model. And part of that yep. assumption is, is interest rates. And you know, back when we talked last, you were using like a 3.5% tenure assumption. We've been ticking higher. But uh, curious if you're still sticking with a 3.5% as you, as you come out with your outlook. Are you raising those rates as, as we move up? Or is just what you've expected been happening on, on the bond side? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, a great question, and and right now we're still using a three and a half percent. So let me just describe 
briefly the capitalized profits approach. You know, we have kind of 60 years worth of data. It's not as much as uh, um, you can get if you look at S&P earnings or, 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 or some corporate earnings. But, but when you use uh, IRS and BEA, Bureau of Economic Government data, um, we, have, we take overall corporate profits, economy-wide corporate profits, and then we discount them. I mean, technically, we just divide by the 10-year Treasury yield. And then so we know every quarter for the last 60-plus years, uh, profits, where interest rates were, and where the S&P 500 was. And then if you use an average relationship between those uh, three variables, so to speak, um, you can come up with a forecast for a fair value today. Um, and if we put in uh, 2.93, I think, the, the 10 years at today, it's going to show the market's 20 25% undervalued. But if we put in a 3.5% yield, which is what we've been doing for the past couple of years, it shows the market today 10% undervalued using fourth quarter 2017 profits. And so if we have 20% profit growth this year, which I think is doable, uh, we're looking at 10% undervaluation plus 20% potentially. And, and that's even assuming that the interest rate goes to 3.5%. Now, there may be a reason, reason to raise that discount rate in the future, but as of right now, we haven't done that. The 10 years kind of sticking around that 3% level. So we think we're safe in using a three and a half right now. And what it says is the market's 10% undervalued today. Um, and that doesn't include the profit growth that we'll get this year. Rick, Rick now you're, you sort of manage real clients and uh, family wealth money. How do those assumptions sound to you? How does that compare to your sort of view and capital market assumptions and allocation decisions? Well, I, I commend Brian. I think Brian and I were two of the only bulls in 2009, and that was a mighty lo lonely time mm -hmm. to be telling people to be buying stocks because you didn't get a whole lot of uh, you didn't get a whole lot of accolades with that point of view back then. So, it's, it's very interesting to me that that even now you don't see a whole lot of bull market sentiment in this marketplace. You still see more fear. So, as an example, you know we had a. a uh, the 10-year the creep up above three, and everybody said that's going to kill the equity market. Then it started backing up again to 2.9-ish, 2.85. It's going to kill the equity market. At what level would you say, Brian, a 10-year might pressure equity returns? Because I don't think we're anywhere near that point yet. Yeah, and Rick, I agree with you, and thank you for those comments. And I do remember uh, it was a lonely time <laughs> uh, to be bullish back then, and uh, good for you. And, um, and anyway, uh, so... So when we put the numbers in the model uh, at 3.9%, it says with fourth quarter profits, last year's fourth quarter profits that were fairly valued. So, so that doesn't mean that we, that we would have pressure on stocks, right? It just says we're fairly valued. Right. And, t and typically bull markets will take us to an overvalued position. So, so I, you know, it's a, I would argue we'd have to we'd have to see a five percent rate or something like that before um, I might get really nervous because then it would say that we're overvalued by fifteen twenty percent um, and 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 that's when you get when you start to get nervous. The thing is 
with 20% profit growth this year, um, that kind of makes up for any rising rates that we might see. So, so it's a, it's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts, um, and there's no necessarily magic number, but we always run, uh, we want to know what rate today makes us fairly valued, and that rate today is 3.9%. So that's why even when the, when the yield went over three, I wasn't worried. Uh, and in, in fact, we wrote uh, not to worry about it. Well, let me ask one more follow-on to that. I've been a follower of your economic work for for, for many years and enjoyed it very much. Uh, and and as you talk about uh, the end of this bull market or how much longer we have to run, I, that's a lot of the questions I get right now. Here you are, ten years in. You and I were were, were bullish in two thousand and nine. I've said that this is a this is a tortoise market. It's a very slowly evolving market. Everything has evolved slowly over the last ten years. But I see a couple of different schools of thought economically out there. One sort of is that the stimulus uh, of December and other issues have come into the marketplace in a way that they've sort of backed up the economic cycle. And we're actually more mid-cycle than we are late cycle, even though it's we're eight years. It's been eight years or ten years since the last recession. Others are saying, well, no. This is more late, late cycle-like, even though you don't have the Phillips curve really pushing us hard right now. There's other elements out there that make this a, a sort of a late cycle economy. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I think I'm, a, I'm in agreement with you. I think we're mid-cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what I, I, almost the, the simplest way for me to, to talk about when this thing ends is, is it's when the Fed gets too tight. And... Uh, and right now, the Fed is a long way from being too tight. And our model, the way we the way we do this is we say, okay, when does the Fed get um, to interest rates to a point where it, it can actually cause a recession? And then that would be what would cause a bear market or a decline in profits and stocks. And and I use nominal GDP as my measure. So if you go back to 1969, 72, 73, the Volcker years, 1991, every one of those recessions was caused when the Fed pushed the federal funds rate over nominal GDP. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at this last four or five, six years, nominal GDP has been about three and a half percent. Right now, we know GDP is picking up. We've got about three percent real growth, about two percent inflation. So now it's up to about 5% nominal GDP, but let's just use three and a half. Let's just assume that's where we are. And uh, the Fed raises rates three more times this year, uh, four more times next year. So the earliest that I would say that they could be too tight, the earliest is the end of 2019. So so I, I think we're more mid-cycle. I think this thing goes on longer than two years. But the earliest the Fed would be too tight is is uh, is the end of next year, and so I'm uh, I'm that's why I encourage uh, investors to 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 stay invested in this market and that profits will continue to grow and continue to push up stock prices. We're talking with Brian Westbury, chief economist at First Trust, Rick Picarin, chief investment officer at Picarin. Um, and Brian, you know, so one of the things in terms of this recession indicators or when does the cycle 
end indicators, it's always people, you know, say the, the, the foolproof indicator is when the Fed inverts the curve. So we get too tight from that perspective. I, I'm forgetting which central banker I saw from the U.S. recently uh, presented a conference saying, well, everybody's watching this indicator. And of course, they are the Fed's watching this indicator. But they said, you know, with where the other central banks are around the world with the ECB, the Bank of Japan, that this cycle may end up being different, that we may get an inversion because of what these other central banks are doing, absent what they're doing. You, do you buy that? Yeah. You know, I. so first of all, we, we obviously kind of know, well, Japan's been doing QE for a long time, but but when you really look at the whole world, we're in uncharted territory. No, I, I, Even if the Fed were to raise rates to 3.5% today, it's hard for even me to say that they would be tight because we have $2 trillion of excess reserves out there. And usually a tight Fed means a Fed that's now draining reserves from the system. And we're a long way from that. And so is, so is Europe and so is Japan. So, so having said that, um, from, a, from a tight money perspective, I, I have a hard time worrying about it uh, today. Um, now, an inverted yield curve, this is kind of a fascinating thing. There's all kinds of theories about what are moving interest rates out there. Um, uh, my belief is the reason long-term rates are so low is because central banks have held short-term rates so low and promised to hold them down and only go slowly when they raise them. Because if you think about it, a 10-year bond is just five two-year bonds or 10 one-year bonds. So if, if, you, if you expect short rates to stay low for a long time, you're going to hold long rates low too. And, and so I think as the Fed lifts rates, if Europe starts lifting rates, I do think the whole yield curve will start shifting higher and we won't see an inversion. So uh, usually the, the yield curve inverts when the Fed gets too tight, uh, which means they raise the Fed funds rate above nominal GDP. That's when inversions happen. Um, and and I just don't see that happening for at least uh, at least two years um, in America and and uh, at, at least that long in Europe as well. So I, I think a lot of these worries about an inverted yield curve are misplaced. I, I, just to follow on that, I mean, it, it seems to me what I've been king off of is that GDP number, whether it's three point five or three point eight. If we're driving long term GDP via stimulus, yes. Europeans and others may be buying the long end of our curve, but the long end of that curve is going to float up. And I think the stimulus package was a gift to Powell because he can sit there and, you know, take these 25 basis point hits that the market expects without roiling the market, without really eating into GDP too hard. And that really lengthens the cycle in my mind. It's a it's it continues to be, uh, you know, I always joke about this fact that I, I alluded to it earlier. We were. You know, we were so concerned with shortening duration in 2010, and we're still waiting in 2018. And I think these effects are going to continue to happen for the next two or three years. And I agree that, that is, it, you know, the only thing that could stop that in my mind is some sort of uh, exogenous shock that got that, that GDP rate down significantly below expectations. Right. Yeah, you know, just let me, uh, Jeremy and, and uh, uh, Rich, let me, let me just uh, add um, – to this and and say that um, the the Fed 
by by just raising rates slowly, um, will will slowly push up that long end of the yield curve as well because they're not tight. I the way I look at an inverted yield curve is that what what that says is long term investors believe short term rates need to come down in the future, and so. The way that happens is when the Fed raises rates too far, then everybody knows, oh, we're now in a recession. The Fed's got to cut rates, and that's and that's why the yield curve inverts. And so, I I just I think a recession is a long way off, and therefore, this idea that we can have an inverted yield curve before the Fed is too tight, I I I, I, I I'm going to be shocked if it happens, and if it does, it it will be because of some weird. Uh, uh, occur- I, I don't. I, I don't know. We're doing things with monetary policy we've never done. So there are there is a chance that things act abnormally. But but I just don't. I don't see this this yield curve inversion anywhere in in the near term. And and if it does happen, it won't be because the Fed's too tight. It's it, the Fed's still a long way from being tight. So, so Brian, you talk uh, a lot about. Um, or sort of this more bullish forecast than, than a lot of people are. And, and sort of part of that is this idea that productivity is high, profits are, and as a result, you see measures, profitability metrics, margin metrics, return equity metrics are at these all-time highs when the, you don't see it in the GDP statistics. But do you have a, a view on sort of within, you know, that where the, a lot of that's coming from is the tech sector. That one's been certainly on fire. Any views on, you know, where what we've seen within the market beyond just sort of the high-level views? Yeah, I mean, within the market, I mean, we're, you know, it's interesting. I think we are going to see lower tariffs. I think we're going to see, um, with the especially the corporate tax cuts, more investment, uh, and we already are back in the United States in the manufacturing sector. Um, and, and so I, th- I think I, I, I look at almost all sectors of the market right now as potentially having strength. The, the U.S. economy is accelerating. Uh, um, and 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 profits are are going to accelerate with that. One, let me take a couple of uh, hopefully not too long to describe. You know, we have this whole argument out there: Krugman, Summers, uh, Larry Summers, uh, uh, Bob Gordon, who have uh, Bob Gordon wrote a book called "The Great Stagnation." The whole idea is that we can't grow faster than population growth plus productivity growth and that's one and a half to two percent so get used to it and i i just couldn't disagree more with this view and i think the simple way to understand why productivity statistics have been so weak is that that the economy can be divided into two parts uh, the private sector and the public sector Um, public sector we have 21 percent of gdp is spent by the federal government about 17% of GDP is spent by state and local governments, and about 7% of GDP is is the cost of regulation on business. So if you add all of that up, <clears throat> the public side is 45%. The private side is 55%. And I believe private productivity, not just in tech, but heck, Nine years ago, it took two months to frack a well. Now it takes two weeks to Mm -hmm. frack a well. That is massive gains in productivity. It it cost us a billion dollars to map our DNA, and now you can get a DNA test for 59 bucks. And so, so there are massive gains in productivity. So 
that 55 percent of of uh, of private GDP uh, productivity is growing three, four, five percent a year. Public um, sector uh, productivity, in my opinion, is probably negative. So 45 percent of the economy has negative productivity. And so when you add 45 percent times some negative number and 55 percent times three or four percent, that's where you get the one percent productivity growth. And but no one buys a share of GDP. You, that's an aggregate number. What we what, what investors, we buy stocks, we, we buy we buy companies and th- that, those companies are seeing productivity boom. And that's why profits are rising faster than GDP and, and, and why so many people think this is a bubble is because they're looking at GDP statistics rather than corporate statistics. And those corporate st- statistics are all super strong. So, Brian, help me take that back up one level because, you know, I hear a lot and, and we live in the world of sort of long term investment policies and capital market assumptions over the long term for the various asset classes, uh, global equities being a main one, U.S. equities being a main one. And and I hear a lot, you know, well, certainly for the next 10 or 15 years, you know, you could only expect equities to do in the low to mid single digits because of of this run that we've had. Now, I I hold back the fact that they're the same people that told me in 2009 that they were only going to do in the mid to uh, low single digits, and it happened to do about a thousand basis points annualized better than that. So, in the words of Bob Buecher, just a bit <laughs> outside. Uh, but, but uh, how do you view that going forward? Because that's so key to the the financial futures of the families we serve is to get that number right. And I, I, I see industry really just pushing that number down in a major way vis-a-vis historical averages. Right. I, I, I believe that this. Above average growth in profits, at least above GDP growth. If we if we want to call GDP average, if that's what the way you kind of think about it, I think corporate America is going to continue to grow faster than GDP. And so these this idea that we can't have uh, you know low double digit returns, ten eleven percent on average, or at least high single digit returns. Let's call it eight to eleven. Over the next ten years, I, I don't. I, I people that say we can't have that, I don't agree with them. Uh, and and the reason is, I, I mean, it, when we started the genome project, the, the we spent the equivalent of a hundred million dollars of, of computer time and, and processing time for for each genome, the equivalent. Today, it's less than a thousand. Um, apps, little old apps change the world. And all it takes is, you know, 10 cases of Red Bull and 13 pieces, uh, pizzas and, you, and a few all-nighters and you got an app, you know, basically. I'm obviously joking, but, but it, they're cheap relative to so, – so small investments get big returns. And uh, the cost of flash memory, the cost of, 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 of all this technology keeps going down. And as a result, profitability keeps going up, and so does productivity. And so that's why I don't agree with the pessimists who think this this that we can only get you know low single digit returns in the equity markets. I think eight to eleven percent over the next decade is is doable. And I don't think it's uh, I, I don't I, I I don't think it's Pollyanna. I don't think it's crazy. I, I think it's doable if you really dig into the productivity numbers that corporations are throwing out. 
We're in our final two-minute countdown here, Brian. Um, and last time, we, one of the last times we had you, maybe it was two times ago, you were off to Korea. A lot of Korean discussions here uh, in, in the headlines for the next, the next few weeks. Any thoughts on how all that's going to play out? Yeah, you know, what's fascinating is I, I went to Korea twice this year. Um, uh, what I found, two things I found amazing. Number one, uh, the Korean people themselves in Seoul, you know, uh, 38 kilometers from the border, were, were never uh, walking around, you know, uh, scared. Uh, and number two, South Koreans pine for for unification, reunification. They they pine for it. They they want it. And and so I am very heartened by what is going on. And and then to uh, to just broaden this out a little bit, uh, when the U.S. I'm, I'm going to just make a statement. I, I believe that the U.S. is good. I, I, I know there are a lot of people that don't. And I know we haven't been perfect every day of our existence. But we don't want to take over other countries. We don't want to to, to, to steal resources from other people. We, we don't want to have war. We want peace. We want prosperity. We want freedom for the world. And, and therefore, when we project force, to push people to get in in line to move that it's kind of like a a parent um, and, and I'm I'm sure this drives if, if somebody's a leader of another country is listening to me right now it would drive them crazy but it's kind of like a parent pushing their child to study get better study habits get better eating habits get better sleeping habits and that's what we're trying to do and I think I think President Trump and he's he's clearly not smooth and and uh, but but that's what he's trying to do. And I think he's doing it for the good. He's not doing it for the bad. And when the U.S. acts in that way, I think good things happen. Well, Brian, so I'm a, I'm expecting good things. All right. It's all I'll have to leave it there as your last word. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, Brian Westbury, chief of conscience, first trust advisors, Rick Picaren. Thanks for joining us here in the studio. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening Thank to you, Behind Jeremy. the Markets and Sirius XM 111. You listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's business radio, channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.